0: This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com.
1: Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our health gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity
0: to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone.
1: Rajshree Agarwal, Ph.D., is the Rudolph P. Lamone Chair and Professor in Entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland and Director of the Ed Snyder Center for Enterprise and Markets. Rajshree's research interests focus on the implications of entrepreneurship and innovation for industry and firm evolution. She is passionate, in particular, about providing business education to science and engineering students to enable them to be effective in diffusing the knowledge they create for economic growth and social welfare. Welcome, Rajri, to Healthcake. I'm excited to be here, too. We brought you here at the suggestion of our producer, Oscar. He's also an executive fellow at the Ed Snyder Center, and he's been raving about you and your concepts behind the CEO of me. That's what we wanted to talk to you about today. The CEO of me and how that relates to the world of health and wellness. So the concept of my enterprise,
2: for which you are the CEO, actually started because I was asked to do a class for high school students about strategic management. As a professor of strategic management and entrepreneurship, one of the things that stumped me is how am I supposed to talk to kids who have had no experience whatsoever? What does it mean to lead Then I realized kids are 16, 17-year-old young adults are at a very important stage in their life. They're trying to identify who they are, what is their place in the world, and what is it that they want their life to be. As it relates to the health gigs broader notion of health and wellness, not just being about physical health, but also about mental well-being, about living, fulfilling, purposeful lives. I think that this concept of what does it mean to define your purpose and then how do you go about thinking about what value you want to create in the world? What problems you want to solve and why are they important to you? And then how do you go about creating relationships that help you achieve your aspirations, but you're also living in a world where you're solving problems and helping others achieve theirs? So
1: how exactly do you do that? How do you train people to lead and what are the qualities? What are the specific things that you look at?
2: So I often think about leadership really starting with self-leadership. I talk about a four-question approach. Every CEO has to really think about these four fundamental questions, which, of course, have principles that underlie what should be the answers to these questions. And the four questions that I talk about is, what's my purpose or mission statement? What does success look like to me? What's my value proposition? And with whom should I trade? Now, generally speaking, when I talk about this all the way from high school students to lifelong learners, they get the first three questions. The fourth question they often say, I don't understand, what does that exactly mean? But if you go through the answers to the first three, the fourth almost falls through as a very obvious question that you should be asking. Would you like me to go through each of the four questions yes. and the way that I talk about it? That would be great. Yes. You know, the first question, of course, is what's my purpose or mission statement? Often people say, well, purpose, mission statement, isn't that just a lot of words or values? But I do think that it's very important to step back and define for yourself what matters to you, what values are important to you. And here I refer to John Allison, who used to be the president and CEO of BBNT? he talks about everybody's purpose. The content may be different, but really the principle underlying it is making the world a better place to live by doing something important to yourself. Now, both of those components are very, very important because making the world a better place to live Often I get this rolling of the eyes, especially if they're teenagers. Oh, my gosh, really making the world a better place to live? How cliched or, you know, how presumptuous of me to think that I alone can make the world a better place to live. But I often say that the world that you live in is really the places you go, the things you do and the people that you meet. And if in these three aspects of your world you have made the world a better place to live. Now it's much more doable Mm -hmm. and it's a lot less presumptuous too.
1: Could that mean your family? Could it begin in your own home? Absolutely.
2: And of course, the people that you are right next to, whether it's at work or in family, are the people that you have chosen as mattering to you. Making their lives a better place is definitely an important goal and an important value. And indeed, that relates to, doing something that's important to yourself. The problems you want to solve should be ones that matter deeply to you. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated Trisha and Dora when I was hearing about what health gig's about. And then also reading about it, you know, your passion about why this is personally important to you just comes through in every website and all of the podcasts. You can see how passionate you are about it. Imagine if you were asked to do something that you didn't enjoy, which weren't part of what your values were. Mm-hmm. Your world wouldn't be better because you're not happy. You're not doing the things that make you feel like you are achieving your
0: goals your
2: values so that's the way i at least approach the first question mm-hmm. and then the second question
0: is how do you define
2: success so what does success look what like does to me look yes like. exactly you know and here i often talk about the movie martian have you seen the movie martian mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite yes. favorite movies mm-hmm. With Matt Damon. With Matt Damon. And you know, he's stuck in Mars. How morbid. I wasn't really sure that I'd like it. But within the first five minutes, you're really laughing. And the other thing that's very important is he projects this very can-do, problem-solving attitude. And even though he's stuck in Mars with no communication, not sure whether he's going to have enough food, his attitude is, well, what do I need to do? to get myself back home. And he's got this very positive, fun-loving attitude, except for one time in the movie, when he gives up hope. And he believes that he's not going to make it because he doesn't have enough food to last. And so he's telling the captain of the ship that has come back to try and get him, but he's not sure that he's going to last as long. Please tell my parents. And if you imagine, I mean, that's pretty sad, right? What would you tell your parents? Well, The way he starts off is what most of us would say, you know, tell my parents I love them. So he says, tell my parents I love what I do and I'm very good at it and I'll be dying for something big, beautiful and so much more than myself. Tell them I can live with that. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So being able to say I love what I do and I'm good at it, that really gets your abilities and your aspirations working in a virtuous cycle. Because look what happens when you are good at something, it gives you a sense of self-esteem. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you've achieved something. And then, of course, that then allows you to invest even more in something that you love. And then you start to love it even more. So, you know, it's this I invest in becoming good. And that gives me a sense of well-being, wellness, that the world is right. Mm
0: -hmm. That's success. Also, you could almost argue in a situation like that, there's less stress. Yes. You know, and it's interesting that you would say about stress. One of my
2: most recent op-eds in the Forbes is exactly about stress and responsibility. And indeed, it started off as a funny conversation with my daughter. When she was 15 years old, she says to me, Mom, I have more stress and responsibility in my life than you do. <laughs> you know, as I say in the article, huh? is all I could muster in response. It's like, kiddo, you really want to take me on about who's got stress and responsibility? I'm dealing with a husband who's going through a very, very debilitating medical treatment with hepatitis C. I've got two of you to manage. I've got this very, very demanding career. And you're telling me you've got more stress in your life than I do. And so we start with challenging each other for a day in our lives. But then she says something which is very important. She says, but mom, how can you say that you're working? You love what you do. That's not work. You enjoy it. And how dare you say that taking us to a volleyball team is a chore, like washing dishes. Is that what we are to you, a chore? She was making a very important point there. She was talking about choices that I was making. I do love my family. I do love my work neither of them not being part of my life, it would leave an intolerable void. So really stress is not so much about what you choose to do as much as what choices you don't have. And so the sense of lack of autonomy, the sense that people are thrusting on you things that you're doing, which is, of course, what she was feeling at that point in time. You know, I've got all of these classes that I have to study. My teachers are giving me this homework. I don't necessarily see how it relates to my life. These are not my choices. My parents are telling me what you should do. I think stress comes a lot more from a lack of control in your life the sense of feeling overwhelmed, it's like you feel like you're being pulled in different directions. However, if you feel like you're loving what you're doing, you're good at it, then it's not stressful. Now, that doesn't mean that every day is a walk in the park, but it means that even when you're working hard, you know what your goals are, what your values are. And so then that makes it so much more worthwhile. So you can slog through the nasty aspects of work. Not everything is fun, but I would like to say that you can find meaning in whatever it is that you're doing so long as you think about how it relates to your purpose, so long as you know that trade-offs matter, and so long as you think that you're not in an island by yourself, but you're really thinking about how you can work with others and make it all the more fun because not only are they creating a multiplier effect on your time, you're learning and you're benefiting from them. So as it relates to stress, I really do think that it's more about a balance of mind as opposed to the time in a day.
1: And I often talk about what's going on in our lives. I say to her, wow, I think we need to pull back and I feel you might be overwhelmed. And she'll say to me, but I love our work. No, it's not our work that is making me feel overwhelmed or stressed. But the third question relates to value proposition. And do you think most individuals know what their personal value proposition is? I think they do. But I think they could also benefit
2: from thinking very seriously and being very mindful about it. So just like what does success look like for me requires you to be mindful. What are my aspirations? What do I really want? Mm -hmm. And then how do I create a hierarchy about the things that matter more for me versus less for me? And then make sure that I don't compromise on something that really matters to me by doing something that may temporarily feel good but doesn't necessarily relate to my larger goals long-term goals if you will I think the value proposition is the other part which is what value am I bringing to you so again the term value proposition relates to what are the features that I have that
0: provide you benefit. It's a win-win. We need to make sure this is a win-win. And that's something that resonates with Dora and I too, that we are in relation with somebody. It's a win-win for all. And that's actually the answer to the fourth question. With whom do I trade?
2: So the value proposition really comes back to identifying what are things that are unique about you. Not just how am I different, because all of us are different. And the differences, however, relate to how does this translate? How do my differences relate to value to you? So when I'm thinking about success, I'm thinking about my values. When I'm thinking about my value proposition, I'm thinking about the fact that if I would like for you to be in my life, why would you want me to be in your life? And so that really requires us to start thinking about the other person as an equal person has autonomy and has the desire to go after their own values. You know, I often get students saying to me, oh, networking is important. You know, they think about networking in a very superficial way, I sometimes think, because networking is, Oscar, I need to get to know you because through you, I can get to meet Dora and Trisha. But it's like, why would Oscar want me in his life? Oscar, if I meet you, what value am I offering you? So this requires us to be much more mindful and respectful of the fact that the people in our lives have choices about what they want to do, where they want to go, and who are the people in their life. And so that then leads you to this very natural fourth question, with whom should I trade? It really gets to this having win-win relationships. Because if your value proposition is what benefit am I offering you? How am I making the world a better place? And the aspirations relate to doing something important to me. Then bringing them together means that we both have to win. So if you win and I lose, Or if you lose and I win, one of us is going to walk away. So if you really want long term, stable, fruitful, blossoming relationships, I think you really need to think about each other as trade partners who are independent equals to you. And so thinking about each other, even in romantic relationships, I think this is important. You know, we think about trade as that's just monetary, that's money, that's superficial. But if you think about this deeper meaning of trade being relationships, where we're each thinking about what makes each other feel good. And not just feel good on a very superficial level. I say this to parents and I say this to kids in these high school programs. I speak for all parents when we say, we want you to be happy. So what is happiness? Happiness is that steady state that one feels when you feel like you've achieved your values. So I often get reminded of that, that happiness can be a lot of hard work, but It is so worth achieving because you feel like everything that you value, you're living. You can feel joy. You can feel sadness. You can feel anger. You can feel all of the emotions. But happiness is that steady
1: feeling that you have that the world is okay. I am okay. And you know what? We're good. Trisha and I have a business partnership it works so well, because I offer things that Tricia appreciates. I certainly know that she offers things that I appreciate. And you're lucky in life if you can find a partnership, especially in trade and business that works that way. So I understand what you're saying. And if you think about it, you can bring all of this together. I often use this
2: concept like a trader sudoku. A colleague of mine at a conference introduced me to this concept of, you know, Sudoku has nine parts. Kendall Hustiano is the one that first told me about it. And so you can think about you having nine parts to any kind of a trade. And the nine parts are there's a me and then there's a you. And of course, both of us have choices about whether we want to engage in trade or not. And when we think about trade, like I said, sometimes we think about it in a very superficial manner. What am I doing? What are you doing? And how are we trading for each other? What money is being exchanged? But there's so much more than those four parts, me, you, what am I doing? What are you doing? Because binding the two of us together is what is our common objective, what we want to accomplish together. And that then relates to these underlying aspirations. What are my aspirations? What are your aspirations? And then what do I bring to the table? What are my capabilities? And what are your capabilities? So I would bet, Dora and Trisha, that one of the reasons why the two of you find each other such great partners is that you complement each other in your capabilities, you're very aligned in terms of your objective and you also share the same values so that alignment of aspirations through the common objective as well as the differences or complementarities of the abilities that you bring together then allow both of you to figure out well this is what I'm going to do this is what you're going to do and this creates a multiplier effect on your time also creates so much more fun right I mean there are a lot of things between my husband and I he's my best friend You know, even in parenting, sometimes we disagree, but, you know, the magic happens when both parents see eye to eye, but both of them can come to the child with their own unique talents. So I often think that sometimes Rob and I trade places. Sometimes he's the disciplinarian and I am the cushy, nice person. Sometimes it is that he is the cushy, nice person and I am the disciplinarian. But, you know, both the roles are important because kids need boundaries, but they also need to feel loved and safe. And having these kind of relationships, even in a personal
1: life. Is so very important, not just in terms of the work relationship. Let's say you have a situation where the nine parts and there's no parts that are going together. Can people learn how to be more compatible? Absolutely.
2: But I would say that even before you start thinking about learning about how to get the nine pieces to fit together, the first and fundamental question one should ask is, is this the right trading partner for me? Just because this person worked yesterday doesn't necessarily mean that you're still completely aligned today. So paradoxically, being able to give yourself permission to walk away enables you to invest to stay. Giving yourself permission to potentially walk away allows you to better stay. Then you know What are the things that are non-negotiable that define you? And what are the things that you're going to be willing to give on? And if each of us comes to the table in that manner, then you can absolutely learn how to get nine pieces to fit together. And there I use what I call the ABC approach for value creation and claiming your prize. A is acquire information. So what are you doing when you're acquiring information? You're really getting information about yourself. You're being mindful. You're being thoughtful. You're asking yourself, what are my abilities? What are my aspirations? What do I need to do? And whom do I need to get as a trading partner? That's the first part of acquiring information. It's just as important for you to ask questions. Of the potential you? The same exact questions. Because keep in mind, this has to be an equal trade. So, acquiring information is not just about knowing yourself, but knowing the other person too. And often we make assumptions about where the other person is coming from. We often get trapped into the situation where this is your stand, this is my stand. You know, I'm picking a very silly excuse, right? But what am I going to do for a Saturday night date with my husband? But well, I want to go see this movie. No, I want to go see this movie. We may get caught into those positions. Okay, fine. Then we're not going to do anything. But really go down to what are your underlying interests. So that's the B. Build on common interests. What is it that we're really trying to accomplish out here? What we're trying to accomplish is having a good time where we're both feeling like we're with each other as opposed to the other person coming along, but you're just resenting it. And then you're coming for the ride. And then, of course, that destroys. So Even if my husband did come and see the movie that I wanted to see, but if he's going to sit there, you know, moping all the way, then I might as well not have seen that. So going to this build on your common interest is very important. And then C is create the win-win. And then, of course, make sure that you're winning. So claim your part of the win as well. But it cannot be that I win at your expense, because then it's not going to be sustainable.
0: I hear you on that. Everyone has to have 100% responsibility in order to win.
1: In addition to being an academic, you could possibly be a marriage (laughs) counselor.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've lived it, right? I mean, my husband is my best friend. We've been married for 25 years. And I can tell you, we are at the best in our relationship Than we've ever been. Our wedding invitation said, On this day, I marry my best friend, the one that I live with, laugh, love.
1: Can we talk a little bit about mindfulness? What are a few mindful concepts CEOs should strive to practice? You know, if I may just take a little bit of a tangent
2: and go there. When CEOs or leaders or managers think about their position, they think in terms of power, authority, hierarchy. I think that CEOs, leaders, and in fact, every one of us needs to not think in terms of hierarchy and power, but be mindful of the fact that true power comes from what is it that I'm doing that makes me indispensable to you. So as a leader, I get to dictate what I need done, but I need to be mindful of the fact that A, is that really true? That what I have decided is the best. Is it really the best? How might I challenge those assumptions? That requires thought and what I call mindfulness. If it is true, have I made sure that I've had enough buy-in from other people? If they're resisting, am I being mindful of reasons for their resistance as opposed to just resistance per se? I don't like the term power. I mean, power and I have a very uncomfortable relationship. You know, people say to me, wow, you're so powerful. And I say, no, I don't want to think in terms of power. But I do want to think in terms of being mindful of my own responsibilities to myself and to the people that are working with me. So for me, mindfulness is really being present in the moment, doing justice to myself And equally well, doing justice to the person that's with me.
1: Mindfulness is critical with leaders in power because we've seen so many abuses of power that it's almost scary. And not just at the level of the leader, but at the level of the people around the leader who fall into this bubble of power. And it is critical. If
2: I may say something here, when a leader exerts power by giving edicts, What is he really saying or what is she really saying? She's saying, he's saying, substitute your judgment for mine. You stop being mindful. You stop being thoughtful. Do what I tell you to do. I, on the other hand, as a director, say this to all of my subordinates, all of my PhD students. If I have to do the thinking for you, then what value are you of me? Because I don't need a robot automaton. What I need is for you to challenge me. I need you to make sure that if I am saying something, hold me to the higher standard of does this make sense? Is this consistent with reality? And indeed, for my PhD students too, they often come to my office and they're talking. And of course, when we're talking about research, it's really about creating new knowledge. So in that arena. If my student comes to me and we both don't know the true answer, that's why we're engaging in the process of research. Now, I might have more wisdom on things that we already know, but on things that we don't know, you and I are equals travelers on the same terrain. So if you end up shutting your mind just because I say, I don't believe that, I don't buy that, you'd say, oh, Rashri said this, so that must be true, or what she's saying is right. Then what you've done is shut your mind. And paradoxically, if I know that that's what you're thinking, I'm going to curtail myself from being honest and saying to you, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. So silencing yourself, you've silenced me. And what's lost out is the idea. The value, the objective that we were really trying to go after. And you don't want to lose on that because that's the beauty of being on the journey together. Rajshree, what book should everyone read? (laughs) The book that changed my life is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand.
1: Tell us why.
2: Basically, everything that I've talked to you about in the last half hour, I got the courage to believe that, to live that by reading Atlas Shrugged at a very, very tender age where I personally was fighting this inner guilt in as much as I was being raised in a very traditional Indian family in India. So choices of who you marry and what you choose to work on weren't mine to make. My father was very clear about that when I was 12 years old. So that created an inner conflict in me because that meant that I had to choose this either or with the one person that mattered so much to me. So reading Atlas Shrug gave me the courage, the pillar of strength to say it doesn't have to be an either or. And that unless and until I am willing to take on the responsibility of my choices, which comes with making my own mistakes, but not reneging those choices, to someone as benevolent, as wise as my father, because then those wouldn't be my choices. Those would be his choices. That book gave me the courage and to realize that it is not me versus you, but really healthy, strong relationships are about the trader principle. So the trader principle I learned from Atlas Shrugged, which is why it matters so much to me. What would you tell your 30-year-old self? Be kind to yourself. I used to say be gentle to yourself or be nice to yourself. But I think the correct word is be kind to yourself. Because being kind to yourself has the element of recognizing that there might be things that you're doing different. So being nice is really about getting you to like me. It's about, am I being liked? Being kind is really, am I giving you good feedback that is going to be helpful to you rather than you thinking that I'm a nice person? So I think that we need to practice kindness for ourselves too. Just like we need to be kind to others, we need to be kind to ourselves too. What is your favorite quote? Eric Hoffer says, in times of change, The learners will inherit the earth, while the learned will find themselves beautifully equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. So particularly for me, that's a quote to live by. I often say that I have never been out of school because I went directly from college into a PhD, into a professor. And I say, I want to be in school till the day I die. Because I'm considered the learned. I'm the endowed professor. But the minute I think that I am learned, but not a learner, I've actually signed my own death certificate. Who would you have dinner with if you could have dinner with anybody, anytime? Past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. Among the past, I guess, Ed Snyder, who endowed the Center for Enterprise and Markets, and of course, Ayn Rand. Present...
1: Would be my husband. Sounds like things are going really well <laughs> with you and your husband. We really want to meet Rob. He sounds amazing. And in the as future,
2: it may be grandkids, but I've given up hope on that. Oh, so if too. my daughters, if you're listening, I don't want to pressure you. But I do want to have a future in which I do have dinner with my grandkids and I get to spoil them and then send them home.
0: I love it. Before we go, I think it's important for us to highlight the roles of women in respect to everything that we talked about today.
2: I am a woman. I am a mother. I am very successful at what I do. And of course, all of this then comes down to how do you balance? Because there are so many things. And this is something I impose on myself because I want to do everything. One of the things that I have realized is really there are five principles that one needs to be thinking about, particularly as a woman. I have realized that we tend to have all of these expectations on ourselves. So the one is create value. It doesn't matter what you choose to work on. And I have a huge amount of respect for all of the people that choose to stay at home and take care of kids. Rob decided to be a stay-at-home dad. Bless him, because I couldn't have done it. And it's a lot of work. But regardless of whether you're working at home or in a professional environment, really the sense of purpose and feeling like you're doing something important creates value, self-esteem. The second element comes to finding meaning. Again, it doesn't matter what work you're doing. It's about the meaning that you ascribe to it. The third principle relates to, again, finding the multiplier effect. So don't do things that you really, really hate. Do the things that you hate only to the extent that it's minimally possible. But, you know, chances are there's someone else that loves to do what you hate. So find that (laughs) other person, going back to the (laughs) trade aspect, right? So this is, again, the figure out the multiplier effect. For me, especially when I realized that I was not going to be able to take care of my kids take care of the house and work, I knew that the first thing that had to go is I was going to hire a house cleaner because that is a chore that I don't enjoy and it's taking away quality time from my kids. And so if you're not mindful, if you're not present, you're not there, and then you're feeling the stress and overwhelming aspect of it, then you're not going to enjoy life. The fourth one is really about respecting trade offs. Going back to you've got your purpose, you've defined your values. And so, as a mother in particular, as a wife, as a working professional, there are all of these trade offs. There are going to be times when there's going to be give and take. So, being able to respect and recognize trade offs and knowing that you can't have it all. This is something that Indra Nui talks about quite a bit, that women can't have it all. Whether men can have it all, I think men can't have it all either, actually, and particularly in today's world, where we are much, much more present. And I'm so thankful that men are now taking a much more important role in family and in raising kids. So you can't have it all. You have to think about trade-offs. And then the fifth one is being kind to yourself, knowing that maybe you can do it all, but you're not going to make everybody happy all of the time. And that's OK. I think it's very important for us as women to remind ourselves that it's OK.
1: Rashri, we are so happy you join us. Trish and I are just honored to have you on this show. You're brilliant, and we look forward to spending more time with you and learning more from you. And we're just thrilled you're here. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on HealthGigPod.com. I'm Trisha,
1: And I'm Doro.
0: Be well.